Okay, we're continuing in the book of Revelation. Now, um, we normally would be going to chapter 15, but before we do, I feel very impressed to make some comments on the overall book and to understand the message of the book before we then move on into chapter 15, all right? So with that in mind, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1. No, we're not going to go through the old 14 chapters again. It's all right. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> but there's a real message for us this morning. There's something very beautiful, I think. It's been a joy to me, and I trust it's going to be a joy and a blessing to you. You just read those first three verses, firstly. The revelation <coughs> of Jesus Christ. Now, that's incredible, isn't it? The revelation of Jesus Christ. If you didn't know what the book was all about, you already know, having read the first line there, the revelation of Jesus Christ, number one, which God gave unto him. I'm always amazed when I read that. It's not just the revelation which God gave to us, it gave it to him. To show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to, the, to his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. See, it's a book of pictures, word pictures. It's a book of visions. It's a picture book. Now, notice this. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand, or is swiftly there, is quickly coming, it's right at hand. Blessed is he that readeth. Now that's the opening verses. Now go to the last book. The last chapter, I should say, in the book. And you'll find something very similar there, very similar. <coughs> in verse 7, it says this, 22, verse 7. <clears throat> Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. What was in the beginning is, was quite plain, wasn't it? Blessed is he that reads. Now it's, again, blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You can almost imagine in a strange sort of a way as John finished all his manuscripts and pages and pages, as it were, chapter and chapter, he put a bookend. He put them on his bookshelf and he put a bookend on each end, you know. And on one front there he got blessing on the first bookend. And on the other he's got blessing on the last bookend. Because that's why this book was written. This book is in the Bible to bring a blessing. That's what it's here for. Primarily to bring a blessing. But go to verse 20. We've got 22 and verse 20. Same chapter. He that testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's like the book crowns itself by saying... The other reason this is the real reason this is going to be a blessing is because it's going to really stir your heart. 
to want the Lord to come and to look forward to the coming of the Lord. Now, these are the principal truths, a blessing and the vision of the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm doing this because we're moving on now, chapter 15 onwards, when we get there, into really sections of Scripture which have been the subject of great controversy. So I need to make this clear. This book was never written for controversy, right? It was only ever written to bring blessing. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy. And my whole purpose in ever opening the book of Revelation and to preach it from this pulpit has been with the intent to bring blessing to the people of God and to the heart of every true believer. Not to bring controversy, because that is not why it is written. Now there is absolutely no doubt that the book of Revelation has been the subject of Satan's attack in a pretty broad sort of way. He's been at work over and over to divide Christians over the interpretation of the structure of the book and created situation where there is controversy and there is not blessing. There is confusion very often. There is division. And over and over there's strife to such an extent that people fight themselves to death, don't they? You know, they divide a church up, they quarrel about it, and it's a horrible thing that comes out of it. And it is indeed Satan's work. Indeed, so great is the controversy about prophecy that many preachers won't even preach from the book of Revelation. And imagine what's happening. The blessing's lost. And indeed, many of God's people don't read the book of Revelation because they say, well, I don't even understand it. I give up. You know, it's so complicated. It's so structured. It's got so many innuendos from so many prophecies and there's so many viewpoints. Best of all, leave the book alone, leave the book alone. Now, wait a minute. You're leaving a book alone that started off by God himself saying it's a revelation of Jesus Christ and then saying, blessed is he that reads. And then he closes his book by saying exactly the same thing. And what actually happens in the long run is that the blessing has been lost. Now, over and over, we approach Scripture with a preconceived notion or idea or structure of what it actually is all, all about. It's a fundamental mistake to, to approach any section of the Bible with a preconceived notion about what it already means. You're thinking you already know what it means and then you go to the scripture and you fit it into the meaning. Or if somebody else goes to the scripture and doesn't say exactly the meaning you've got in your mind or the, use the very words that you're expecting to hear, even though what that person says may not be exactly contradictory at all. Nonetheless, they didn't say what I was expecting to hear. You know, when you've been preaching for, for many years, you get, into, you, you, you get a bit amused, you know. You can get into trouble for what you say. But what always puzzles me is you get into trouble for what you never said. Because somebody in the congregation was, that was, this was what they were expecting to hear from that verse, and they didn't hear it. So he's sus, that preacher. He's definitely sus. So you get a bit amused and you think, well, I remember saying once, uh, after being criticized for something I hadn't covered in a verse, I said, well, we will cover everything in this verse, but, you know, settle down. It'll take me a couple of hours to do that. And you only give me half an hour. So sorry if I didn't cover your pet theory. <laughs> you get the idea. So let's get it clear. 
The meaning, when you approach scripture and you read it, number one, the meaning of the text that you're reading is actually in the text itself, in its context. You don't have to go to a text and put a meaning into it or make sure what you were already thinking fits into that text. Let God's word speak. Then comes the blessing. Let God's Holy Spirit open your understanding to the word and the blessing of God will flow into your soul. Now you don't have to know the Greek language and you don't have to know the the Hebrew language and you don't have to be highly academic and intellectual and intelligent. You just have to be a simple believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has got God's Holy Spirit within you who will lead you and guide you into the truth and you can read the text and you can understand the text and you can see it in its context and the word of God becomes a blessing. I say it again, the meaning of the text is in the text and in its context. We have already been told in these early verses that this is a picture book. And as I've gone through the Revelation, in a way I might say I've never gone through it like this before. Never. I have gone through it and I have taken each picture. And each picture is giving a lesson. And we take the message of the lesson seen in the picture. And we discover amazingly that the principle, the picture, the lesson which the picture is portraying is a lesson which is actually timeless. The actual principle in the letter is timeless. It doesn't matter what you're looking at or where you're looking. You're looking at the glory of the Lord. You say, oh, oh, oh wait a minute, that, that's not just yet. We, we, that, that applies to a time that's up here somewhere ahead. Or, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's already been fulfilled. It applies to something. No, it's the glory of the Lord. You're looking at the blessing of the believer, whether they're standing on Mount Zion or upon the sea of glass. You, you can be thrilled by the fact that I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and redemption is the same in any time period, you know. And the safety and security of the believer standing in that peaceful scene on the sea of glass before the throne of God is an unchanging truth of peace and security and fellowship and joy and harmony and heaven and being with the Lord, which is so much better. You see the picture? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Now, wait a minute. That only applies to people who die well, in this period of time, or that people of period of time, or some... No, it's a blessed, glorious truth that death for the believer is the gateway, the doorway to glory. So I could go on. What is my point? Well, I could have stood here and said, <coughs> as a matter of fact, <coughs> my viewpoint on prophecy is uh, I'm a dispensationalist, you see. I'm a dis- so every now I will fit all these verses into the structure of dispensational teaching. Oh, well, no, as a matter of fact, I'm not one of them at all. I, I'm one of these preterists, you know. We, I, I actually believe that all of this has already happened by the year AD 70. Uh, that's my structure on the take on prophecy. So I take all these verses and I start to stuff them in to make sure they fit into my preconceived theory. Oh, well, not at all, not at all. No, I'm an amillennialist, so everything I say has got to prove to you there's no such thing as a millennium and there's no thousand years. And what goes on? What goes on? What goes on is you get conflict. We've looked at the pictures and their timeless lesson, and I basically would defy anybody, I don't care what your viewpoint on prophecy is, there's not too much I've said that you can disagree with. And if you haven't been blessed, then God have mercy on you. This is a wonderful section of scripture, and it has timeless truths, a picture book, with timeless lessons. 
The other thing we haven't attempted to do, this is important, what I'm saying, because you're going to miss the blessing of this book if you get all you know, worked up about details and what comes next and who does what next. And you go and quarrel with the brother next to you because they don't see it the same way as you do. And division and strife and confusion. No, 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 stop. I've gone through this book so far to chapter 15 and I've made no attempt to establish a timeline of events which will occur and must occur before the Lord shall come. No. I look at it and I say, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus and let it be right now. And maybe at morn when the sun is awaking. <laughs> we, know this, we know that hymn so beautifully, don't we? We don't know when, thank God for that. Why have I not established a t- timeline? I'll tell you the first reason. The first and definite reason is because we are not allowed to do that. Have you forgotten in Acts 1 and verse 7, do we forget these things? In Acts 1 and verse 7, the Lord Jesus is about to go back into heaven. He's about to go up there into glory. And there he is. He's conquered death. He's the risen Christ. Things are on the move. Yes, Rome and its power and the Pharisees and religion and all that they've done to crucify him. He's conquered it. The disciples say to him, Lord, is is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, you can, you can understand they're waiting for events to get going and all those old prophecies to be fulfilled. And he corrects them. He says, you're getting a wrong viewpoint here. It is not given to you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath in his own power. If it's not given to us to know, then it's not part of the book of Revelation, or should I say the Revelation is not written for that intent to give us a timeline. Now, more than that, if you go back before the cross, I think it's just two days before the cross, the Lord Jesus gave teaching, we call it the Olivet Discourse, that is, It was a time when he was there on the Mount of Olives and he was looking over the city and the disciples had just taken him on a tour of their magnificent temple which Herod had built and uh, he had said, you know something about this temple? There's not going to be stone left upon a stone that won't be thrown down. And they took him aside and they said, Lord, you tell us about this timeline that you've got. Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming again? And at the end of the age. His answer, of that day and hour knows no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now keep that in mind. There's reasons for this and I'll show you what the reasons are. The moment you start wanting your timeline, what happens is we get obsessed with looking for the next thing that's going to happen. You know, the next thing that's got to happen. And the Lord can't come before that happens. And we lose that sense of what the book is written for because by the end of the book it's, I come quickly. And the response is, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Oh, hold it, don't come just net. You know, Russia hasn't done what it ought to do and China hasn't been fitted into the picture and the Queen of the South and the King of the North and the Antichrist one and the, and the Antichrist and Beast one and Beast two. Stop it. We're missing the blessing. 
I'll be quite blunt with you. I spent 40 odd years studying all the frameworks of prophecy, but I never got the blessing like I get it now when I read it and see it in all its splendor. A revelation of Jesus Christ. I see the pictures, they're timeless. The lessons, they're timeless. The coming of the Lord is the outcome of reading this book. And that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. And before I move on to that, what should be our attitude to the coming of the Lord? Think about it. Have you ever thought about that? What's your attitude to the coming of the Lord? When you say, you read me that verse... Lo, I come quickly, and you'll certainly join in and say, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, can I ask you something? Why is it you want the Lord to come? Think about that. Think about that. Because it's really, I've been doing quite a bit of thinking. I've been quite challenged, actually, reading reading some of the old hymns or and reading autobiographies of great men who wrote great Christian poetry. And, and what really struck me is their intensity, the reality of their love for the Lord. And many of them were writing out of personal experiences. And you get glimpses of the fact they're longing for the Lord to come, and they express it in such a beautiful way. And it made me think, what a... They've got something here that I need to strive with God's help to get a grip on myself. Why do you want the Lord to come? You say, well, this world's in such a mess. You know, there's the confusion, the turmoil, the sin, the evil. We want him to come and put an end to the whole thing. That's, that's pretty good. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We want to see evil put down. We want to see sin dealt with. We want to see Satan overthrown once and for all. And another time, you know, it depends often on the season of your life. You, you might be facing some real difficulties, some serious difficulties. I mean, there are difficulties and there are difficulties. And when you get the real difficulties, then you suddenly realize all the other difficulties were just little ones. Right? The big ones. Say, well, I want the Lord to come and put an end to all this, this sadness and hardship and struggle of mine. I just, I just want it all over. That's, that's, well, that's, that's nice. That's nice. It's normal. It's normal. Completely normal. You say, well, actually, I want the Lord to come because I'd love to live in heaven. Heaven is such a blessing and such a joy. It's such a, a thing to look for. This would be lovely. Yeah, I want to be in heaven. That's good too. But... Have you and I yet got to that state of spiritual maturity and affection in our souls where we just want the Lord to come because we want to meet him, to see him face to face and to tell him properly that we really love him. Is it the Lord himself that is the consuming object of our anticipation and the longing from a heart that has been touched by the fullness of his love? Whom having not seen we love. Conscious of the fact that on whom, though not now looking, 
yet rejoicing with joy unspeakable. And it is full of glory. Is it the person that we have loved all our lives? Is it the master that we've served all our lives? Is it the shepherd that has kept us all our lives? Is it the guide that has led us all our lives? Is it the one we have spoken to every day? Is it the Lord that we've called on in every circumstance? Is it his word that we have read that have made us turn to him constantly? Is it him? Is it Jesus? And Jesus only. You see what I mean? There's a difference, isn't there? It really challenged me as I read some of the hymns where they, they were panting in their, their writing to actually just want to see the Lord and to give him thanks. He loved me and he gave himself for me. You know, Those kind of spiritual emotions and experiences that are real. And fellow believer, I want to bring that to you this morning because this is all part of the book. It's the way the book ends. It ends with, I'm coming quickly. Even so, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It ends up with the spirit and the bride are saying what? Come. Come. Why? Well, just to... Just let the world see that we're, we're on the Lord's side and we're the winners. No, it's coming because they want to see the Lord. Speaking to a man not well, a week or two back, and he, he said, oh, he said, I want to be here when the Lord comes. I said, well, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice if it happens. By the way, if we're not, I mean, it'd be wonderful. But, you, you know, we won't miss out on much if we're not. <laughs> Because we'll have already got most of the reward by being in the presence of the Lord. And after all, he's going to call us up out of the grave, isn't he? Caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air. With all those that are alive and remain. He said, I said, well, why do you want him to come? And he said, oh, he said, I just want to see him come and sort all these fellows out. He said, and give them, give them their spiritual comeuppers. <laughs> and I thought, well, all right. You see what I mean? I think we can all relate to that situation. Now, I want to further take you now so that we're getting prepared for the whole structure of the book and then we can move on in chapter 15 later. We've got one, it's written for a blessing. Two, careful with your timeline. Three, it's written to stir our affections in such a way that all we're looking for every day is the coming of the Lord. You know, when you're younger, we used to hear this priest a lot, and I used to often go home and think, the Lord's going to come on my birthday tomorrow, you know. <laughs> Those are all very natural things. But let's put it in the spiritual context. What do you want to happen more than for the Lord to come and for you and I to see him face to face? Take that home and meditate on it. So what should be our attitude to the coming of the Lord? Just what, what does the scripture say about it? I want to show you something. You go to Matthew 24 with me. We're building it all up to the end of the book of the Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But what's our attitude to the coming of the Lord? Now, we went to Matthew 24 in my quotations before. And in those quotations, I spoke of what Matthew 24 was all about. It was all about the fact that they'd been looking at the temple and its buildings in verse 1. Verse 2, they were all going to be torn down. And in verse 3... 
They sit on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And the Lord Jesus says in, uh, <clears throat> actually in AD 2052 will be the first thing when you sit. No, he doesn't do any of that. He actually gives some beautiful, beautiful teaching. And he gives beautiful teaching about his coming and about the attitude we should have towards that grand, climatic, glorious event. Verse 36. But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father also. He said, I will tell you this. As the days of Noah were, you remember Noah in the ark, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. In other words, life just went on as it has always gone on with no expectation, no intervention, and nothing happened, right? Until the day that Noah entered into the ark. What happened on that day that Noah entered into the ark? That was the day when God spoke and moved and said, Noah, go thou and thy family into the ark. Things will go on in the world in its turmoil and its sin and its misery and its chaos and its evil until God the Father speaks. And turns, as it were, if I could use this picture, pictures, turns to his son and he says, Arise from off of that place that you're in and go out there and establish the kingdom of God in power and great glory and bring in the new heavens and in the new earth. You say, I wish he'd do it. I wish he'd do it. You know why he doesn't do it? Do you know the, the reason in Scripture why the Lord Jesus Christ has not come? is because God is a God of mercy. And a God of patience who wouldn't have the death of any and he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. God waits in grace, infinite grace. And he waits as a God who would fain wait before judgment. Judgment is God's last and final word. But he waits meanwhile in patience for sinners to repent. God waits in grace with hands outstretched to bless. That's what he does. So our attitude there is that where we understand, he says, that it'll come suddenly, it'll come unexpectedly. It says, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Then he says two are going to be in a field. The one's taken, the other's left. One is taken for blessing, the other is left for judgment. Two women grinding in the mill, one taken, the other left. One is taken for blessing and the other is left. Actually, just in passing, Revelation 14, which I didn't actually touch the harvest in that last chapter that we did, you'll find there are two harvests, not one, in that little section at the end of chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. And one is where he reaps the earth and he brings in the, the sheaves, the people of God. And the other is he reaps the earth and there's judgment and a terrible scene of carnage and of the wrath of God. And that's what you've got here. Two are taken, one's taken. Sorry, two are there, one's taken and one is left. He says, but know this, sorry, verse 41. Two women grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Verse 42. 
Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. That's the first thing. You're watching. That's your first attitude. No, you're not doing clock. You're not getting, setting clocks. You're not looking for events. You're not looking for people. You're not looking for anything else. You're looking for the Lord to come. You so have got to love him. And you so come to know him. That you cannot, as it were, live without him. And you're constantly watching. Watching. There's a sense of expectancy. There's a constant looking. It's as though, now imagine it this way, you've got yourself in some part of life or in the world, and it's a terrible place to live. You know, you've been exiled for your faith into northern Siberia, all right? And you're stuck there, and every day is miserable, and everything's against you, and there's total hardship, and you're there because of your faith. But they've told you, they sentenced you there, which is what they do to the people of God when they persecute them. They've told you there's a train that's coming by and it'll take you out to liberty. And they've got away. But what they didn't give you was a timetable. You see? So what are you going to do? doesn't matter how cold it is. doesn't matter how hungry you are. What are you going to do? You're going to be watching for that train because you're not going to miss it. Now, that's the attitude that the Lord Jesus is in seeking to instill into these people of his and into all of us now. We are watching with a sense of expectancy. We dare not miss it. It's something which our entire future rests upon. It's like the coming of that train and whatever else I've got to do for survival. I've always got one eye constantly open looking at that railway line. And if I've got a minute, I'll go and stick my ear on the railway line to see if I can hear it coming long before I can see it. Because my whole intention, my whole living is bound up in the fact that I'm watching for the train to come. And fellow Christian, there is a train coming and it's the express to glory. That's what it is. And it's going to come and it's going to take us home. The difference is this. It's not going to come along a horizontal railway line. It'll come from above. So lift up. Lift up. Look up. For the day of your redemption is drawing nigh. That's the point of the book of Revelation. It's to make it real. Make it alive. So that we are watching. So you say, well, Lord, thank you for giving us that teaching. He says, wait a minute, teaching. Wait a minute, I haven't finished, he says. <laughs> We're still in the Olivet Discourse. And in verse 45, he says, I want to tell you a parable. Now, a parable has a point in it. Forget about the details of the parable. When you ever read a parable, go for the main point first before you f- go for the trimmings. And he says this, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall so find doing. The point of this parable is that he has gone away and left his servants with a work to do. You get that? We're not here for nothing, you know. We're actually here to fulfill the very work that he gave his people to do just before he went back to heaven. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. No, I don't mean have massive gospel campaigns and strive to be the best preacher in town. 
when you get up tomorrow and you go out in that world, you let your light so shine before men. That's preaching the gospel. You live the life of Christ in this godly world. That is preaching the gospel. You let it be seen in your whole attitude to people. Your whole attitude to life and to circumstances. Your whole, not only your actions, but your reactions. That you are a child of God. You are the light that's in the world. You are the salt that's upon the earth. And in everything you are and do and say, you are preaching the gospel. We're left with a work to do. But what does it say? Verse 48. If that evil servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Oh dear, he's lost the vision of the coming of the Lord. That's what's happened to this poor man. And he begins to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink and be drunken. What's happened to this man? This man's got into quarreling. Get it? Self-indulgence and he's into quarreling. He's punching his brother out because he hasn't got the same view on prophecy. You get the picture? And I tell you, while you're fighting, you won't be working. And while you're fighting, you won't be watching. And may the Lord keep us together without quarreling. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133. For there is the Lord commanded the blessing, even there, even life forevermore. Let us consider one another to provoke one another to love and to good works. Let us learn to respect one another. Serve one another. That's what a church is for. Fellowship is you and I serving me, serving you. Even standing here to preach the word, there is, there must never be the suggestion in my soul that I'm sort of showing off or something Godless like that. I'm here to wash your feet. I'm washing your feet with the word of God and I'm serving you, you see. I'm serving you. That's what it's all about. A preacher should be one of the most humble of men for he's handling the great things of God and he's not worthy to do it, nor does he fully understand them himself. But he's there to feed. Feed the people of God? What's happening so often in the churches that people don't get fed with the good word of God? And that is why the servant has been given his task. We consider there's a great work to be done. And there is a massive work to be done. And it's not, let me put it this way, it's not that we do it. He is doing it and using us in order to accomplish the work which he has planned and wants to have done. There is a very different, a big difference in understanding there. I mean, what the world is in a mess. The time is running out. Sin is rampant. Satan is on the rage. He knows his time is short and he's doing everything that he can to disrupt. But the Lord Jesus has said very plainly, I will build my church. He's the master builder. He's the architect. He's the planner. He has got the program. And then he says, and the gates of hell, let the beasts rise up. Let the antichrists go into the world. Let the greatest antichrist finally arrive. I'll build my church. And can I say this very clearly here? I pray God for the day when this little church here in Thornlands 
will be by his infinite grace used in that grand building program for the building of the church of God. For that final bride prepared for his son. For that final picture of the glorious city of God, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let us get that vision, fellow Christian, for this as we ourselves a church here at Thornlands. It's not a cozy little cottage where all my needs are met and all my likes and dislikes takes priority and I don't like it any other way but like this uh, and it's a threat if somebody else is so, so so it goes on stop let us stand back for a minute and get a right attitude to the coming of the Lord we're watching and we are working and we are in the grand business of being part of God's building program and used by him fit to use by him in the great work of the kingdom of God it's a tremendous thing you know That's what's in these teachings here in Matthew. I'm not making it up. It's as plain as the nose on your face. He said that you watch. And he said about this servant, you work. Be like a servant that works and feeds God's and serves God's people. Not one that's forever quarreling. And you end up getting your eye off the ball. And what's more, you're nothing. You just end up eating and drinking, which is so wrong. It's self-indulgent. You say, well, that's some lesson. The Lord says, I haven't finished yet. sermon's not over in Matthew. He then talks about the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins which took the lamps, went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. The foolish took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil. The wise, they took oil in their vessels with the lamps. While the bridegroom tarried. You see that? While he was a long time coming. It's been, what is it, two thousand years they all slumbered and slept you see they weren't working were they you can't work when you're asleep and then they slumbered and you can't be watching when you're asleep see there's there's something gone wrong here they've got their eye off the whole purpose of being there and then the tragedy comes that the cry awakes them There's been, if you study church history, you'll see times in church history where the voice of God has been raised up in the land and there's suddenly a call to the realization of the coming of the Lord. And that's what we're looking for. And you see these times of great revival in church history because they've been stirred to wakefulness again. But what actually happened here, the ten of them all woke up and they got ready to meet the bridegroom to see the one who they were supposed to be watching for, working for, waiting for, expectantly looking for only to find out that half of them never had any oil to keep their light shining. Basically what that means is they were not ready in any shape or form because they were not truly people waiting for the coming of the Lord because really, you know, they weren't true Christians. I just want to say this. You can go to church every day of your life. You can pray every morning of every day and it doesn't mean it makes you a Christian. Either you know the Lord who's coming or you don't know him. Either he knows you, or he doesn't know you. Many shall say in that day, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. You never went and bought some oil for yourself. You just went along with the crowd. That's quite a horrible experience, only it's 
quite recently, someone who had all sorts of problems, medical, emotional, lots of emotional. And anyway, I said to them, now listen, what about your faith? We used to practice holistic medicine. What about your faith? Oh, well, a few years ago it was pretty good. Really good, actually. But I don't know. I don't know now. Something's not the same. Um, well, you know, some of my friends have died unexpectedly and my closest friend has died. And I just think now, well, if I get up to heaven there and then they have the final roll call and my friends aren't there, well, what's the point of it all? You get it? I mean, your heart bled for that man. And it's, I do now. There's no oil in the man's light. He hasn't got the point of it. He doesn't see what it was all about. It's not all about my friends being in heaven for me to be there with them. It's the Lord. Can you see it now? You see why I'm going through this to get you to the point of revelation. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That is your hope. And that is your expectancy. Yes. Praise the Lord. When we're all there, we'll enjoy fellowship one with another at the Savior's feet. But it's not the point. So the point, what you've got here is, the Lord is saying about these virgins, he's giving them the message, yes, you should be watching, yes, you should be working, yes, and you must be ready. You must be ready. That's the attitude to the coming of the Lord. And then finally, there's one last talent that he does. I'm sorry, there's two, but I'm only going to do one. It's all right. And he tells them the story in verse 14. And in verse 14, it's the kingdom... I just noticed actually in the first before, in verse 13, the parable of the virgins ends up with watch therefore, you see? Watch, don't sleep. And you don't know the day nor the hour, so you be ready and prepared. Now, the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling into a far country, called his own servants, delivered unto them his goods. When he gave five talents, when he gave two talents to another one, he gave only one talent, but he gave it to every man according to his several ability. Or in other words, according to the person's ability. Now the first thing is, let me put it bluntly, pardon me, but no matter how dumb you are, you've got a talent. Alright? Okay, sorry, but you have. Well, I can't do anything. What? You've got a talent, man. You say, yes, but I can't do what so-and-so does. Well, he's got two talents. Well, I wish I had two talents. No, 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 no. He gave you one talent. And the two-talent man says, oh, well, you know, I can't do much. I can do a bit, but look at him over there. He's got five talents. Wish I could do what he had in five talents. It's not much worth doing much because I can't do much. He can do so much more. Now, wait a minute. When the Lord came back and he spoke to the man who had five talents, and the man that had five talents came up and said, Lord, the five talents you gave me, right, I made another two. Oh, dear, 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 now. I gave you five to make five. The man that comes with two and says, Lord, I, uh, I came and I only made two and he made three. I uh, says, you've done exactly what I intended you to do. You've used what I've given you. Did you hear that? You have used what I've given you. You enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm going to give you great responsibility in the coming kingdom because you've used what I gave you. Stop hiding your talent in a towel, brother or sister. Oh, it's so hard. Nobody appreciates me. (laughs) Sit down on your hands and say, I might as well wait for the Lord to come. Well, you're not waiting at all because you're not working, you're not watching, you're not trading. You get the point, you're not trading. The Lord in his mercy 
has given us all some talent to trade with. I don't know why. If you ever discover what your talent is, oh, don't start me on that. Remember how we all had to find out what our talents were. Look, just stop it. Stop looking within. Stop getting your graduation certificate and hanging it on the door and saying, well, I happen to be this kind of Christian, so come to me for advice. It's all wrong. It's not right. If you want to find out what your talent is, you'll find it out by discovering that the Lord puts in front of you certain work to do. End of story. It's the end of the story. He might put somebody in your way that you're meant to speak a word of kindness to. He might put somewhere in your way that he needs to hear the gospel and it's just you and your, your inability and simplicity who are the very one that's meant to do it. He might put you into the church and it might mean you're to sweep the floor because you've got on the end of a broom. And it matters as much as that person who's been given the gift to preach preaches and does it well for the glory of God and serves him and him alone with a single eye. There is no difference. Brother... Get off your hands and use the talent God has given you. Then you'll have a right attitude to the coming of the Lord. Oh, you say, I'm too busy with my timeline. He's not coming yet. So what do you do? You sit on your hands. Oh, well, things are so hard in my life. It's so terrible. Oh, all I can do is wait for the coming of the Lord. Despair, despondency, laziness, quarreling, bickering, criticism. That's what it breeds. That's what it does breed. And it'll do it in any company of believers, no matter how small we are or no matter how big we are. We put it together. We are watching, working, waiting, trading. Watching, I'm alert. Working, I am absorbed and busy. Waiting, I am excitedly expectant. Trading, and I am fruitful. In what I am in my life. There is something coming for the glory of God. No. My theories are gone. My timelines don't matter. All I care about is that he might come today. That very time when I didn't expect him. My quarrelings are all often. And I just spend my day looking for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, depart us with a blessing. Depart us with peace and hope and expectancy. O oh God, we give thanks for this grand book of the Revelation. And we pray that as we continue through it, we may find our hearts strangely moved. And when we hear those words, behold, I come quickly, may we all say together, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And may the love of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the communion of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God enfold us and be our blessing as we leave this place until we meet again, or until our Lord shall come. Amen.